0: Nahum's one of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Okay, so Isaiah, all those guys, get to the small ones, and that's where we're going to be this evening. To understand the book of Nahum, we need to look backwards just a little bit. Uh contemporary, actually not contemporary, but Nahum is actually a sequel, or you can consider it a sequel to the book of Jonah. I think most everybody here here uh, is familiar, I, I'm looking around seeing church family, I think everybody's familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. God says, Jonah, uh, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah, as an obedient prophet, says, yes, Lord, I'll go. And then for some reason, his obedience, he turns the other direction, tries to get on a boat to go far, far away, possibly as far away as the other side of the subcontinent of India, depending on where you locate Tarshish. That's really not God's plan. And so God says, Jonah, um, that's not going to work. And through a series of circumstances, Jonah ends up in the belly of a fish. And the fish spits him out eventually on dry land about several, well, actually more than several days March away from Nineveh. And he makes his way to Nineveh, that great city. And he goes in and preaches the message God gave to him. Forty days. You have four. Okay. By the way, if my voice breaks or anything like that, I'm sorry. I'm not going through puberty, and I don't, please don't make me do that. <coughs> I've been fighting off a viral thing, and it settled right there in my throat. So if I do what I'm supposed to do, I'll speak down here and support myself and all that kind of stuff. But if I just get talking, I'm going to be up here and it's liable to break. So hang in there with me. Uh, Jonah gets to Nineveh and he comes into the city and says, God says in 40 days, this place will be overthrown unless you repent. Turn away from your idols. Turn to God. God wants to care for you. And lo and behold, the people repent. Repent. Not just the people. You think, okay, common people, they don't know better. All the way up to the king. As a matter of fact, the king decrees that everyone should fast for several days. They should put on sackcloth, signs of humility, as they repent and throw themselves on the mercy of God. And God turns away the wrath. There's no judgment. Of course, I think if you you remember the story, that kind of myths Jonah. Jonah knew that God would be merciful if they repented. And Jonah didn't like the idea because at the time... Assyria was one of the major empire city-states around and they had been cruel to in many degrees to the nations around them, especially to Israel. Uh, Jonah is in the late 700s BC. But within about 40, 50 years of Jonah's ministry, we find Assyria has now grown into a large empire. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I can do this. Uh, this is what it looks like at that time. About 40 or 50 years after Jonah, everything you see that's in the green was ruled by the city, by by the Empire of Assyria. It was a huge empire for that time. The only reason they didn't take all this stuff down here in the the tan is because tan also stands for desert, and they really didn't want anything down there. It's hard to work with. So whatever was available, they conquered. And they didn't just conquer. Uh, One of the things that we find is they turned so far away from their repentance that they became known as one of the most bloodthirsty empires ever on the face of the earth. Uh, Dr. Walter Meyer gives a description of something, and let me just read parts of this to you to give you a flavor for how they dealt with people. Uh, It says, as they began moving down into Egypt, you can see down over here, down your bottom left, uh, as they moved down into there, those who refused to acknowledge the king's overlordship were flayed, Alive, that means they were skinned while they were still living, and their skins bleached on the city walls while large numbers of others were impaled. They were hung on poles, and then the poles forced through their bodies, starting from the bottom, working up through their heads. After conquering the city, he was convinced that he could not properly govern a city so large from such a distance. So he resorted to savagery. He made the destruction of the city so complete and terrifying that the very memory of what happened would prevent further uprisings. They literally leveled the city. Like, not one brick on top of another leveled the city. Then they carried away the rest of the population. But, since travel is hard with women and children, they decided they didn't need them. So what they did was they slaughtered them. They took the children to what the Bible, what we'll see in Nahum, they they describe it as the head of the streets. And in these public places, they took the babies and dashed them against the walls while their mothers and fathers watched. And then the mothers were slaughtered while their husbands watched. And only the men who they decided were worth anything were then turned into slaves. They gambled for some of the upper crust people to make them personal slaves. And then they were carted off back to Assyria. And that's just one instance of how this thing worked. They said the dead were stacked high all around, men, women, and children. So much so that when you read kind of an account of what happened in Nahum, he gets to that, we'll look at it in a moment, it said it was hard to move around the city because there were so many dead people. Assyria was not a nice empire. Uh, Assyria, although, is a place that many of you are familiar with today. You think, Pastor Mark, what in the world are you talking about? Does the name Mosul in Iraq mean anything to you? You've probably heard it in the news. ISIS and the coalition forces have fought back and forth for control of that city. I think right now coalition forces are in, in possession of the city. Uh, Mosul, you'll see from this map, Nineveh, basically the, the, most of the ruins of the city are within that red area. The part that looks like all the, the housing and everything around it and within that part, that's the city of Mosul. So what they've done is they've tried to go in there and recapture that area. That to them is strategic. Uh, there's archaeological things in there, a lot of things that could be taken care of. Uh, you can kind of get a feel for what's going on. This is an artist reconstruction of some of the ruins that are there, and we'll see the actual ruins in a moment. This would have been one of the 15 gates to the city. This is how big the thing was. In some places, the walls were 50, five, 0 feet high. More than 20 feet wide in some places. And you can see where they've staggered the walls so that you might get in through one, but, but you, then you've got another and another to deal with. Uh, as you look, this is one of the actual city gates that is still there. You can go over today and see it. Now, not all of them are still there. There were many that were up until recently. Uh, here's another, uh, reconstru- this is a, a reconstruction of some of the doors. Uh, this was taken back in the... I think the early 30s, uh, British archaeologists recovered this, reconstructed it. Those those doors are now in the British Museum. But that gives you an idea. You can see that person, that lady standing in the foreground. Those doors are tall. Okay, this was a big thing. But as ISIS has moved back and forth, uh, Islam looks at anything that is not... Islamic as idolatrous so they're over there going through the ruins I'm, I'm ahead of myself here's one of the walls you can see you can see those parapets on top uh the guy on the bike kind of gives you an idea how tall those are uh here's a stretch of wall they actually were able to uncover you know a good long stretch we say, oh mark those walls aren't that high okay the ramp that you see it looks like you know it's kind of all going up to that that's all dirt that's accumulated there over a couple thousand years that's just the tops of the walls that you can see Okay? But ISIS has come in, and this is what they do whenever they find anything like that. They just bulldoze it. It's 17 hours. Thank you. That's my computer talking to me. It's five o'clock. It won't do that again before we're finished. I promise I will not be going at six o'clock. <coughs> Trust me, I will not be going at six o'clock. But this is what they're doing. Anything that's over there. Because on most of these walls, there are There are reliefs, there are sculptures, there are things that they would look at and say, this is idolatrous, so they're blowing them down every which way. So that's the city of Nineveh. And we get to it, and we look and see that God was going to judge them, and he didn't. He postponed that judgment. Now we get to the book of Nahum. Nahum is 150 years after Jonah. And he's given a message For the Ninevites and it's interesting that we get this because Nahum writes the book but it's never delivered to Nineveh. That wasn't even the plan. The book is written that we're given the information about the destruction. This is everything that's going on and now we have we have Nahum writing this book about the destruction of Nineveh. You look at verse 1 in Nahum, uh, chapter 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. And then we go in through the book. The first part of the book really is a, it's very psalm-like. Like like one of the psalms, the first eight, nine verses, almost read like a psalm about God's greatness and God's glory. Then after that, uh, beginning at verse 9, you see God beginning to taunt the Ninevites said, you think you're going to do these things. You're devising plans. You're coming up with all these things. You're plotting against the Lord. But it's not going to happen. And as Nahum goes through, you keep going. Chapter 2 is basically a description of what exactly it's going to be like when Nineveh falls. You can see through what's going on. You can read through how he taunts them. He talks about the devastators devastating them. Chariots will be running through the city streets, killing people. Soldiers are going to move through the city like fire. The leaders will try to escape, but to no avail. The city will be empty and desolate. And then you get to chapter 2 and verse 13, and you need to see what he says here. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. You get into chapter 3, and you can almost hear... The battle. Look down and just look through it. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Verse 2, the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses, bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. Verse 5, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. And then he goes on to describe how he's going to embarrass them and how he's going to move through. And then you get to verse 8. Verse 8 is pretty neat. He says this, Are you better than Noamon? Anybody got an idea where Noamon is? I'll give you a hint. It's in Egypt. And Noamon is not the name that it always carried. Noamon is the city of Thebes. Now look at it again. Are you better than Thebes? Which was situated by the Nile, and he goes on to talk about all the the wealth and and the power, the the help they had, how they seemed to be without fear or anything like that. But yet, verse ten, she became in exile, went into captivity. Her children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men. All her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You too will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. And the implication is there is no hope, no help found. He says, draw water for your siege in verse 14. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the mold. The fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as a locust does. Verse 19, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? So here's the question. He goes to great lengths to describe Nineveh and what happens to it. How bad it's going to be. And it's a hopeless situation for these people. God may have waited 150 years, but the judgment now falls. So why give this letter to Israel? Why do they care? More importantly, let's back out even further. Why should you be reading the book of Nahum? It's in the Bible, which means it's profitable for us. We're told that all the scripture is profitable for us. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, we cheer, yay, the bad guys lose. That's a great thing, by the way. But what are we really supposed to do with this? Do we look and say, okay, we don't want to be Nineveh, and that's a great thing, we don't want to be. But what we need to see is this. God gives his people hope. In this horrible situation where all you're reading is all this death and devastation, there is one verse where you go back in there, and it mentions that, that the Israelites have been in bondage and in fetters, and they will no longer be that way. Because remember the map, Israel was part of that empire for a good long time. As a matter of fact, in 722, the northern ten tribes of Israel were carried away into captivity by these same Assyrians, never to return. And then the... It just gets worse and worse and worse. So at this point, which is probably 60 years past when the northern tribes are carried away, the Israelites are still in subjugation to the Assyrians. But the thing is, Nineveh is not destroyed for 50 more years. nineveh We have documented history. Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC. This book was written at least 40 years before that. So what is Nahum trying to tell them? What is God using this message to tell his people? He's telling his people, there is hope in me. He is the God of hope. He's the hope because the Ninevites will be destroyed. But what we need to do is go back now into chapter 1. Because there are little bitty places here and there where God says... Here's what you need to know about me. I am this way. This is who I am. In the midst of all this destruction, here's what God tells his people about himself. And then he ends it with the only commands in the book. And there are two. There are only two commands. But he does tell us what's going on. And what we need to see is that God gives us hope in him. So the first thing we need to see is this. You must learn to trust the I've got that right there, and it's all great. Look at that. All right. Some of the language we're going to see sounds like Exodus 34, where he says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means let the, leave the guilty unpunished. So what does God tell us about himself? What is he saying we need to do? First thing you need to see is this. The God of hope is slow to anger. Look down at verse 3, would you, in chapter 1? Verse 2 begins, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. But then he says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. God is slow to anger. Where do we find hope in that? Right here. God is patient with you and with me. You look back over your life, don't you find that to be true? God is patient with us. If God were like us, most of us would be in real deep trouble because we don't look around and we're not very forgiving until later on when we've had our say. But God is patient with you and with me. Remember, Jonah was 150 years before this prophecy. And then there's another 40 years before the city is destroyed, but it is. And that's with God's enemies. Those are the enemies of God that he is giving all of that time to repent. There are other places in the Old Testament that will remind you of that. Genesis 16, God tells Abraham he's going to send his children down into Egypt for four generations roughly there down in Egypt, about 430 years. Why does he do that? He says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I need you folks to leave so that I can give these people more time to repent. Now, we don't know how he gave them his word and how all that worked, but the point there is God says, I want to give them more time. You look through the history of the kings of Israel. uh, Nahum is uh, contemporary with Hezekiah. Hezekiah receives a message of judgment because when the Babylonians came to see everything, what did he show them? He showed them all his wealth and his great kingdom and all his great buildings. And the prophet came in and said, you didn't give God glory for this. Judgment is coming. Now it was just adding up. It was piling up from other wicked kings. But even a good king like Hezekiah struggled. But yet it was decades before God brought that judgment. Decades. God is patient with us. He is slow to anger. We so often feel like God is just ready to zap us, don't we? Something's going to happen and we feel, okay, you repent and then I need to do something to make God happy with me again. God is happy with you all the time. He loves you and in his love, he is slow to anger. He is not waiting to zap you. He's waiting for you to repent. He is giving you space to do that. As you grow and we walk in Christ, He is giving you time to learn. Because we don't all get it right the first time. I don't. God is slow to anger. We also see this. God is great in power. Now, you read the rest of the book and you get a picture of power, don't you? Everything God says He is going to do, the judgment is going to fall, and it's going to look like this. (coughs) God is really, fully, entirely capable of caring for you. Now, these people were still being subjugated by the Assyrians. And God says, I've got this covered. I am strong. I'm strong. I'm great in power. I can take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. And then they read through the rest of this book and say, oh, that's what God's going to do. We've got hope. There's an end in sight. Because God is great in power. Uh, He was able to do to the Assyrians what no one else could do, defeat them. Pretty interesting how the city of Nineveh fell. History tells us that when the Babylonians came and sieged the city, it had been about three months, they had been ringed around the city. And during that time, they had finally blocked up or dammed off parts of the Tigris River that came around it and one river that was inside. And it began building water up to where it finally got to where the walls were. And then, lo and behold, by coincidence, there was a long, protracted rainstorm. And eventually, those rivers flooded way beyond what any part of it could handle. And a section of the wall that surrounded Nineveh for probably more than a mile collapsed. And the Babylonians stormed into the city and destroyed the place. Think God's got enough power to take care of you? He knocked down the wall. He can bring the rain. He can take care of the Assyrians. He can surely take care of us. So he's not only slow to anger and great in power. God is good. God is good. God's on your side. Just to put it plainly, God is on your side. The prophet is trying to help them understand this is God's message. God is saying, Look, I'm here. I'm for you. I want you to succeed. Had the Assyrians done anything good for them? No, these people were vassals. Whatever Whatever they planted, part of that went away. Whatever they had going on, the Assyrians took. It was not a pleasant time. They had followed idols, which is why they were in this mess to begin with, by the way. The Assyrians were God's tool because they had gone off into idolatry. Had the idols done them any good? Nope. The idols had no power at all. But God is great in power, and God is good. He wants your best. God is on your side. He's going to help you through the things going on in your life. He helps us as we seek to serve Him. He helps us when we learn and grow and as we pray and try to exercise our faith. God is good. and He wants your success. He's on your side. He is on your side. He's also, he says, a stronghold in the day of trouble. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Down to verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. A stronghold is a fortress. In most of these cities in the Near near East, there was a big part of the city that's kind of spilled out everywhere. Then there was a section of the city that was walled. Low walls, just kind of a slow barrier. Then you come in further and there was a section of the city that everybody would retreat to. The big high walls, all that kind of stuff. And in many of those cities, there was also a central fort, like a castle. That was called the stronghold. It was the last place you went. It was your last hope. Even if the enemy got through everything else, this was the place you would go to and feel like you had utter and complete safety. And God uses that picture and says, when you're in difficulty whether it's in this kind of problem where you've got oppression going on, whether there are physical things going on, you're struggling emotionally, you're trying to get through things, God is your stronghold. God will never fail you. God will always be there for you. Why? He's slow to anger. He doesn't want to get you. He wants you to be in a safe place. He's on your side. He's for you. He's strong enough to care for you, so he will never fail. He is always going to be that place where you can go to find protection, to find peace, to find deliverance from everything else that's going on all around you. The Ninevites didn't have that, did they? They thought they did, and then God used rain and water to remove all their hope. And the Babylonians came in, and like we saw earlier, it was utter destruction. God will never, ever fail you. God also knows those who trust him. God knows those who trust him. What does it mean that God knows those who trust him? In the language of the Old Testament, this is a deep, intimate knowledge that goes beyond, hi, how are you, how you doing? This is God knowing everything about you. God knows your circumstances and your needs. He knows everything that you're thinking. And because he is slow to anger and great in power, because he is good and he is a stronghold, he can care for you. He can give you hope in the worst of circumstances because he really understands Hebrews 4, I think it's a passage many of you are familiar with. Jesus Christ is our high priest. How is he described? He's not a priest who is not touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He really does understand what your life is like. He really understands when you're struggling. And he wants to give you hope in himself because he knows All about you. He knows what you need. He knows what things are like at home, whether they're good or bad. He understands how school might be more than you can handle. That people might be more than you can handle. Or that the people you rely on might have become unreliable. But he's not. But he's not. He knows those who trust him. You look at one verse, chapter 1, verse 9. God said he knew whatever they had devised, whatever the Assyrians had devised against the Lord, and he makes a complete end of it. He knows what his enemies are thinking too. But he knows you. He wants to keep knowing you. Those are, that, that's the way he wants to work in our lives is with that deep, intimate knowledge. God wants us to understand that he can offer hope in the worst of circumstances because he is who he is. So that brings us to this point. What are they supposed to do with all this? He tells them, this is who I'm like. This is what I am. In the midst of all these bad things, this is who I am for you. And just kind of Park it in the middle, right? Just put your mind in the middle of that city with all that horrible, all the destruction going on. And then there's Israel, and God is trying to say, look, I want to offer you peace. I want you to have hope. So while all this is going on, this is really bad, and I can be this horrible if I need to be. To you, I want to offer hope. So he says this. He says, celebrate your feasts. Look down at verse 15. Behold on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Uh, This is a military illusion when armies were battling. Pardon me a moment. When your army went out to battle, battle's over, you win. One of the first things you did was you sent a messenger back home to say, Yay, we won, this is great. All of you know one example of that. Anybody ever hear the word marathon? Okay, after the Battle of Marathon, the Greeks sent a runner back to where they were, 26.2 miles away. And today we run marathons that are 26.2 miles long because of that event. He was the messenger. He was the guy with pretty feet, according to this. The feet, you know, how, behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. We've won. The war is over. There is peace. Does that sound familiar at all from the New Testament? It should ring a bell. (coughs) Excuse me. Nahum says, celebrate your feasts because of the peace and the deliverance that's being offered. Then he says this, pay your vows. Pay your vows. Okay. So they're in subjugation of the Assyrians. Life is difficult. All this is going on. And then Nahum, God through Nahum says this, celebrate the feast." Pay your vows. What is he telling them to do? He's telling them this. Remember your God. Remember who God is. He's just described himself in those previous verses. Now he says, take steps to remember who your God is. Remember what he's like. How do we do this? How do we celebrate the feasts? Here's one way. Rejoice in the gospel. I I mention that because we're told in Romans 10, how can they call on him in whom they have not heard believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, fill in the parentheses in the book of Nahum. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord... Who's believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In a context of explaining and sharing the gospel, the message of peace is the deliverance we get from God, from sin. So he says, rejoice in the gospel. True deliverance is only found through Christ. How are we going to remember our God? We're going to rejoice in the gospel and in what he's done for us. Because that's the message of peace. The runner comes in. The battle's over. The victory's won. What is the last enemy? Death. Who conquers death? Christ. That's the illusion here. The victory is over. The battle is won. We should rejoice in the message of the gospel. Everything God's done for us. That does mean we need to make sure of couple of things. Do you really understand the message of the gospel that mankind is without hope, without Christ? Do you understand that God sent his son Jesus to pay the price for that sin? That's the gospel. And only as we accept that offer of cleansing do we really receive true deliverance. Those of us who know Christ, We're delivered from sin and its power, not its presence, but we don't have to live in in bondage to sin anymore. Paul says we've been delivered from that. We celebrate the feast. We remember who God is, number one, by rejoicing in the gospel. Number two, you abide in the word. You abide in the word. Where do we find out who God is and what's going on? If we're going to remember God and learn about him, what do we do? What's going to shape our thinking? It's his word. It's his word. Only as we're in the word do we understand what God thinks and how we should respond in every situation. And let's face it, we're faced with a lot of different things going on. Lots of different choices. I mean, how do you respond to somebody who hollers at you because you're conservative? For instance, we've seen that in the news. What happens when you try to share the gospel with someone and they throw it back in your face? How do you answer somebody when they say, oh, that's just an imaginary construct from your mind. If that makes you feel better, great. But I don't believe any of that stuff. I believe in science. How do we know? How do we acknowledge God in our lives? We abide in his word. We're going to let our consciences be informed by the word and not the world. We're not going to say, well, I can be a Christian like this, but I'm going to do this over here. We're going to remember who God is by following his instructions, by doing what he tells us to do. <coughs> then he says this, pay your vows, pay your vows. In the Old Testament, vows were either free will offerings that people gave as a sign of devotion to God, some of them, there were literal vows, like the Nazarite vow. If you're familiar with that, don't cut your hair, don't touch dead things, don't drink anything from, from wine. Those were all dedication things. So he's calling on the people, pay your vows. You've got to remember, in the Old Testament, a vow was serious. Ecclesiastes 5 says, pay your vows. God does not deal kindly with people who don't. Pay them today, he says. So how are we going to do that today? Let's do the spiritual things. Okay, now let me just pull over and park here a second. It's one thing to say, remember God and all he's done for us. And to organize our thinking by his word, rejoicing in what he's done for us. When I say do the spiritual things, all of a sudden everybody wants to, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Now you're talking about you know, works and, and all that kind of business. This is how we work out our salvation. This is how other people will see Christ in us. Okay, general categories, personal purity. Do you represent God well? What does your life look like? Do people see Christ in you? Or do you do what you want to and then show up here on Sunday and things are really cool? And I'm not telling you what these standards are. What I'm saying is God does demand personal purity from us as his representatives. It's a natural outworking of what's happened in us through salvation. Does your life display a personal purity that shows that you're acknowledging God in your life? You're dedicating yourself to him. What about love and care for God's people? Here at GBF we like to say we're reaching souls and building lives in love, together in love. We work together to help each other. Do you actively take part in that? Would other believers look at you and say that person really cares. He or she has done X for me or I've heard of or they've been kind. They're kind to me when I'm in need. Do we have a love and a care for God's people that we should have? Galatians 6 makes it very plain that we're supposed to be taking care of everyone, especially those of the household of faith, Paul says. But then we have to look outside. There is supposed to be a care and concern for the lost. And we don't need a long list of verses that say go out and witness and share the gospel. You know that's what we're called to do. Go you therefore and teach all nations. Make disciples. We're to be reaching souls. That is part of dedicating ourselves to God. If it's important to Him, it needs to be important to us. Okay? One more. Good works. Good works. We talked about some of them this morning. Our banquet and burp cloth thing. Let's find ways to share the love of Christ by doing good works. Over and over again in the New Testament, Paul says we're supposed to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. Those are all action verbs. When was the last time you were kind to someone? Okay, on the positive way, not the, not the I didn't beat him up today, but the positive, I did something. Seriously. When was the last time you could point and say, I did a good work for the cause of Christ for someone else or in some way? Can you do that? We're told to do it all the time. Across the New Testament, we're told, here are the kinds of things we need to be doing. Are you doing good works? Because those good works show the nature of God that we are kind and considerate like he is, that we look for those who are in need. That's why Paul told Titus in chapter 3 that we need to teach, our people need to learn how to do good needs To meet pressing needs. There's the how. How do I do that? Find people with needs. That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be learning to do good deeds, to meet pressing needs. And that proves that we're not unfruitful. Because good works are an evidence of the fruit in your heart. They're the outward fruit that people can see. We celebrate our vows, celebrate the feasts. We pay the vows. We do the things God says need to happen because he gives us hope. If he is who he says he is, these are the kinds of things we should rejoice in doing. If you know Christ is your savior, you ought to rejoice in that gospel and then know that he gives you the power because he is Powerful. And you can live the right kind of life. You can rejoice in what he's doing. You can do the spiritual things. You can dedicate your life to the Lord on a daily basis. And all that means is you make the next right choice. It doesn't mean you're going to hear the call, go to Africa or anything like that. It means you're going to dedicate yourself to God and let him work through you to do the things that are necessary to accomplish his kingdom work. Go back and think through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What you need to look at that as is a handbook for citizens of the kingdom of God. And you see how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to be doing, how we should work with each other, what we should know about our God. And what we find is God gives us the strength to do everything we need to. He is the God of hope because he really is slow to anger and great in power. He really is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. That's the God we serve. And he says, if that's where you are, here's what you do. Celebrate those feasts. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done and then go out and do that. Go out and serve. That's the natural response. When we place our hope in God, it shows in our lives. And that's where we need to be. Nahum's telling the people. God is giving the message. Destruction comes to those who are the enemies. Those who won't turn. Which, by the way, he does say the guilty will not go unpunished. And they understood that. They were under the Assyrians because of their sin. Let's determine that we're going to place our hope in the God of hope and in nothing else. That we'll submit to him and let him be the Lord of our lives so that we can do the things that we need to be doing, making our lives and everything we do as we relate to people things that show his glory and not ours. Let's share the gospel by the way we live, telling people what God is and who he is to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful. For your incredible grace. For the way you work in our hearts. For giving us hope in the midst of bad situations. You are huge. You are so powerful. We'll never tap into all that. We, we keep reading and the things just don't... We can't even comprehend what it means to speak and have something come into existence. And yet you did that. You have that kind of power. You can control nature so that walls can fall. So the circumstances can change. You can read hearts because you know us. You know every part of us. Our downsittings, our uprisings, you know us that well. And we acknowledge that you are great and you are worthy to be praised. So Lord, help us. We desire to be people who would remember who you are and find our hope in you. That we would dedicate ourselves to you that we would celebrate feasts in our heart, that we would grow in our understanding of you and spend time in your word so that we know how to respond to things. Or give us strength. You call on us to do things that show the world you and your glory. And in ourselves, we cannot accomplish those things. There's nothing we can do that will make that work. But it is by your power and grace that it can. So help us we seek to change, that you would grow us in ways that would please you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.